Welcome to episode 47 of the Gen X Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Piper, and I do thank you for joining with me. Now, this episode is going to simply be a, a solo show. Um, our chosen guest couldn't uh, come on this early in the month, and um, my wonderful co-hosts uh, couldn't be on this episode, so I decided to make this episode about something that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while, and I haven't, only because it's kind of a difficult, <laughs> or you know, uh, conceptually difficult um, subject, at least for me to wrap my mind around. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I also wanted to uh, talk about a little bit later in the episode, fall photography using some uh, cool films that aren't standard films that you'd use for uh, color photography during the fall. Well, let's get into the uh, first part of this episode and talk about lenses. Now, when I first started photography, you know, back way, way back, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't I didn't think about cameras or lenses. I, I didn't think about film or the when I got into digital didn't think about anything other than the image uh, you know taking the picture um, most of my lenses were zoom lenses uh, you know my point and shoots or whatever um, even when I got my Fujifilm X100 with a fixed focal length lens I still didn't really think about apertures that much or uh, you know anything regarding uh, what its uh, focal length was or anything like that but when I got into film photography, the first camera that I really, that I actually bought and had with me was my Minolta SRT 101. So being a, an SLR, you know, it's an interchangeable lens camera. And that, that got me starting to think about lenses a little bit more. It came with a 135 millimeter lens, um, F2.8. Um, but I started buying this kind of lens and that kind of lens. I bought a, a fast 50, a faster 50, some 35s, a 28, a 24, some more 135s, uh, some 200 millimeter lenses, and I have now a 400 millimeter lens. So, you know, I've, I've accumulated some, what I think are nice and lovely lenses to use. And of course, I've gotten more cameras than just the SRT 101. Now I have plenty of SLRs in various systems. Um, but o over the course of the last couple of years, I've started to learn a little bit more about how lenses work. And, um, of course there's a lot to understand. There's a lot of science behind lenses and, uh, you know, most of it, I, I, most of it, I don't understand. I will continue to learn. Um, but I wanted to talk about just a few of the things that I've learned so far and, uh, please bear in mind. I'm a novice, and uh, I hope that the information that I present is first and foremost accurate, but also clear and relatively easy to understand. So let's talk about a couple of the different uh, numbers that you see on the lens. One is the focal length. Now, most of us have, uh, you know, various lenses for our, for our SLRs. Uh, maybe we have a 50 millimeter lens or a 35 millimeter lens. Right now I'm holding a 135 millimeter lens. Well, what does, what does that actually indicate? Uh, what's, what's with the, the numbers and the millimeter? What does, that, what does that mean? Is it how long the lens physically is? Or is it how far away the subject is? Well, focal length is the distance 
and it's measured in millimeters, between the point of convergence or the optical center of your lens all the way to the film plane or the sensor recording the image. Um, we'll, I'll discuss that point of convergence or, or point of convergence or optical center here in just a minute. Now a camera's lens is not made from a single piece of glass. I should say most lenses are not made from a single piece of glass. Uh, there are some that are, uh, some particularly old lenses that are made from just one simple piece of glass, but most lenses are made with a combination of lens elements and lens elements, element groups. These combinations help to focus the light to, to be optically, you know, sharp in sharp focus and also cut down on distortions so that you get a flat looking image and not something that's wildly distorted. Now the location where all the light rays coming in through that objective lens, the outermost lens or the front element, the location where the light rays converge is somewhere in between all those elements. It's not at the front and it's not at the back. It's somewhere in between. It's within your lens. And the location where they converge to form a sharp image is known as the optical center of the lens. And this is, uh, it, uh, this is determined when the camera is focused at infinity. So then you take that you, you take that point, um, which of course you can't see because it's within the lens, but you take that point of convergence and measure the distance between that point and the film plane, and that is your the, the length or the focal length of your lens. So a 50 millimeter lens would be 50 millimeters away from the focal or from the uh, film plane and that point of convergence. A 35 millimeter lens, 35 millimeters from the uh, film plane to that point of convergence and so on and so forth. So it's a uh, maybe not something that we would readily know or maybe even need to know, but it's just an interesting uh, uh, information. It's inter interesting information to be able to understand about our lenses. Well, let's move on to our next set of numbers, and these are the hyperfocal distance numbers. Um, we'll talk about the numbers in a minute. And we'll talk about what it all means in a minute. But let's say you have a camera like I have. It's a Cantor Beauty rangefinder camera from 1957 that I got from a thrift store uh, for $2. Really cheap find. And uh, most of the camera works just fine. The shutter is pretty accurate. The film advance works fine. It's, uh, you know, it's in, in good condition. Um, the focusing mechanism, in fact, works fine. So I can see the lens move out in and out nice and smooth so I know that the lens is focusing but one major problem with that camera is that the rangefinder is not connected to the uh, to the lens so even if the lens is focusing nice and smooth I can't see it in the viewfinder so that's a problem how do I use that camera or perhaps you have a zone focusing camera where you don't know the distance that your subject is but you happen to have a camera that has these this set of numbers that we're going to talk about or maybe you have an SLR with you know your prime lens that you're using and it has these numbers and it's just good information to have this is uh, that's what the point of this episode is uh, again this is called hyperfocal distance uh, hyperfocal focusing or hyperfocal distance numbers what is hyperfocal focusing well it's 
kind of a esoteric <laughs> uh, knowledge to have. And I'm a novice. I'm just starting to learn this. So just bear, uh, keep that in mind. Bear in mind that, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that all of what I say is accurate um, and clear to understand, but I am a novice. But from what I understand, hyperfocal focusing is the hyperfocal point is the point at some distance from you before which and all the way out to infinity, everything is in relative focus. So it's kind of a range of focus uh, for a given depth of field uh, at some point um, before that hyperfocal point on out to infinity. And that range can, um, or the close, I guess the closest point of that range can vary uh, depending on the lens you use and the aperture that you use. For instance, if you close down your aperture uh, all the way to where it's uh, the most closed down, f22, f32, f11 maybe, however however closed down you can get that, that um, aperture, then that point is going to move closer to you so that everything from that point that's closest that's the closest point to you on out to infinity will be in decent sharpness. Conversely, if you open your aperture all the way up, then that point is going to be further away from you. In addition, if you have a wide angle lens, say a 24 millimeter, even a 35 millimeter, um, that distance is going to be closer to you. Whereas if you have, or as you move out, uh, or get a larger and larger focal length lens, that point is going to move further and further away from you. So to get the closest hyperfocal distance, you want a wide angle lens stopped all the way down. <laughs> um, and that means that everything within a certain range, that closest range to you all the way out to infinity, will be in decent focus. So how do you use this uh, hyperfocal distance indicator that's on most lenses and what what is it by the way well it's a it's an indicator that's non-adjustable but it's related to your aperture and related to your focus ring and they look like your aperture numbers because they are uh, derived from your aperture your you know your aperture settings your aperture ring they're derived from the aperture numbers and oftentimes they'll well they they will almost always start with your largest, uh, the smallest aperture, largest number, and then go down to your smallest uh, or largest aperture, smallest number. Uh, let me say that again. They'll oftentimes start with the smallest aperture, largest number, and go all the way down to the largest aperture indicated by your smallest num aperture number. So for instance, I have this uh, Vivitar 135mm f2.8 lens that stops down all the way, well, from has an aperture range from 2.8 all the way to 32 and all the stops in between. So this um, hyperfocal, the hyperfocal distance indicator uh, on this particular lens starts with 32 and then it goes from to 22. It skips, oh, no, I'm sorry. Then it goes to 16, then it skips 11, then it goes to 8 skips 5.6, goes to 4, and then skips 2.8. And then conversely, it goes back up to uh, cop or 
repeating those same numbers all in reverse all the way to 32. So you see that they're derived from your aperture, but they're not the same. So how do you use it? Well, let's say you have your chosen aperture is 16. That's a common maximum number or minimum uh, aperture. Let's say you, you're stopped down all the way to 16. What you want to do is rotate your uh, focus ring until you reach the uh, one of the 16 um, points on that indicator, that or hyperfocal distance uh, indicator uh, ring there. So match infinity to where it meets up with that 16, not to where it meets up with the regular focus distance marker, but where it reaches that 16, um, because we're using F16 as the, as the example here. Um, and then notice at the other 16 that's on that indicator, what it lines up with. Now, on my example, on my lens, when I have infinity matched up with 116, then the other 16 is um, somewhere just beyond 50 feet or 15 meters. It's like it looks like maybe 60 feet, 55 to 60 feet. So that's the range for this lens that uh, things will be in nice sharp focus from 50 feet on out to infinity with one about 100 feet being the hyperfocal distance. So from 100 feet all the way to infinity outward and down to 50 feet or so, 55 to 60 feet away from me, that will be in sharp focus. Um, if I pick a more stop down number, then it's going to be, then that number is going to be closer to me. It, if I say pick 32, then that point is going to be just under 30 feet from me. Likewise, if I, uh, or conversely, if I pick f2.8, then that point is going to be, you know, <laughs> way, way, way out. So it, it helps you to set the depth of field and, and, it, figure out what depth of field you want so that everything within a certain range will will be in focus. Um, and again, every lens is different. Uh, that that indicator, in fact, for every lens is different. This this particular lens I chose for this example because it has all those numbers. Some some lenses have only two numbers that are indicated, say 16 and 8 or 16 and 5.6. And you have to kind of guess in between. Um, but other lenses are a little bit more, uh, give you a little bit more information. So that's hyperfocal distance, uh, the hyperfocal distance numbers and how they can be used. Let's move on to what I think is the most fascinating and it's the most mathematically intense maybe, and that is aperture. What in the world is up with those crazy numbers? 1.4, 2 2, 8, 4, 5 8, 11, 16, 22, 32. What, what's up with those numbers? What do they mean? Why not just state the aperture as, you know, simple numbers? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and so on and so forth. Why have these weird numbers like 5.6 or 2.8? What, what in the world does that mean? And why is it F1.4 or F8? 
F 5.6. What does the F stand for? What does this all mean? Well, the F stop, or F divided by number, signifies the diameter of the opening, uh, a di the diameter of the opening, you know, that the, that light, the light will enter and is designated by a fraction. So it's literally F divided by the aperture number, an aperture meaning a hole or an opening through which light passes. For example, F2 is literally F divided by 2. Well, that's all well and good, but what does the F stand for? F stands for the focal length, and we already talked about focal length, didn't we? It's not, again, it's not the length of your lens, it's the point within your lens at which the, 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 the point of convergence where the light makes a sharp image and that distance between that point and the film plane. So F stands for the focal length. So let's say you have a 50 millimeter lens. Substitute uh, for that F, you substitute it, you substitute 50 for F and you get, instead of F2, you have 50 divided by two. Well, 50 divided by two is 25. So the diameter of the aperture at F2 for your 50 millimeter lens is 25 millimeters. But what does that mean? Well, it's, it's not the diameter of the objective lens. It's the diameter of the opening through which light will pass, the, the iris of your, of your lens, so to speak. It's kind of like your eyes have an iris, and the diameter of that iris, as it opens and closes, is the aperture. So what does it mean? Well, remember that the F slash number signifies, signifies the size of the opening letting light hit the film or sensor. If you have twice the size aperture, you'll have twice as bright of an image. And if you have the size of half the size of the uh, aperture, you'll have half the brightness. But the important fact is that the brightness of the image is a function of the area of the aperture, the area, not the diameter. And in, incidentally, the more aperture blades you have, the closer it is to being a circle. Um, so an eight-bladed aperture or eight-bladed iris will be closer to looking like a circle than a five-bladed iris or even a four-bladed iris. I have an Olympus XA which has four aperture blades. So that's, <laughs> it's a square basically. Um, but the more aperture blades you have in the iris, the closer and closer it is to looking like a circle. So again, the important fact is that the brightness of, of the image is a function of the area of that aperture, not the diameter. So we're only partly there. So let's take that 50 millimeter lens and that F2 aperture. Since we're dealing with area and not the diameter, then the aperture denoted by F2 or 50 divided by 2 or 25 is not the final number. It's an important number, but not the final number. It's a step along the way. So that aperture diameter of 25 is the diameter of the rough circle letting the light hit the film. The radius of that rough circle is half of the diameter, which is 12.5. 25 divided by 2 being 12.5. Now, if you remember from school, and this is because we want to know the area of that aperture, the area of a circle, which for our purposes is what determines how much light will hit the film, 
is stated mathematically as pi r squared. So the area of a circle is pi r squared. Now remember that pi is approximately 3.14. So the area of the aperture at, let's say this, again, 50 millimeter lens at f2, the area of the aperture, if the diameter is 25, is pi times 12.5 squared. And 12.5 squared is 156.25. Multiply 156.25 by pi, or 3.14, and you get 490.87. So 490.87 is the uh, area of that aperture, the area of the circle for that 50 millimeter lens at f2 that's hitting the light, uh, letting light um, hit the film plane is 490.87 millimeters squared. So that uh, 25 that was derived from 50 divided by 2 is related, but it's just a step along the way. It leads us to the actual area of the aperture, 490.87 millimeters squared. And that's just for this particular lens at this particular aperture. It's different for all lenses and all apertures, but that's, this is just an example. But now remember that twice the size brings in twice the brightness. Twice the size of the aperture brings twice as much brightness. And if you half that size, you get half the brightness. And the size is determined by the area of the aperture. So let's go in one direction. Let's half the brightness and see what happens. Take that calculated area at f2, or you know we derived it to be, found out that it was 490.87 millimeters squared, and divide that by two. We want half the, the amount of light to hit, hit the, the uh, film, film plane. So divide that by two and you get 245.4. 245.4 is the area of the circle that will let in exactly half the amount of light as you will at F2. Now let's work backward using our knowledge of pi r squared and divide it by pi. So we'll divide 255.4 by pi, and you get 78.1. Now the square root, because we have to now work at, with the square root to undo the r squared, the square root of 78.1 is 8.8. 8.8 is the radius of the circle that will let in half the light as f uh, lens uh, opened up to f2 would. Now multiply 8.8 and you get 17.6. That's the diameter of the new aperture. Now take your lens focal, lens focal length, in this case a 50 millimeter lens, divide it by that new diameter, 17.6, and what do you get? 2.84 or 2.8. <laughs> Funnily enough, that's, an that's a particular aperture that we very well know it's the next stop down from f2 f2.8 and that will let in exactly half the amount of light well now let's go in the other direction let's start again with f2 with your 50 millimeter lens and with an aperture area of 490.87 millimeter squared that's the original one that we the original aperture area uh, 
that we uh, figured out. Now multiply that by two instead of dividing it. Multiply it, multiply it, and you get 981.74. That's the area of the new aperture that will let in twice the amount of light as um, as you would at f f uh, two. Now divide. Um, 981.74, again, that new aperture area, by pi, and you get, divide it by pi, and you get 312.49. Take the square root of that, and you get 17.68, which is your new larger radius, and then multiply that by 2 to get your actual diameter, and you get 35.35. Now, <laughs> divide 50 because you have, again, a 50 millimeter uh, lens, that's the focal length of your, your lens, divide 50 by 35.35, your new diameter, and you get 1.4. <laughs> so isn't that fascinating? All those numbers are definitely relevant, 1.4 to 2.8, and trust me, it will go on as you go further up the aperture scale, all the way to as close down as you, as you want to go. Uh, so that uh, new aperture will let in exactly twice the amount as it would at f2, which again will let, let in twice the amount as you would at 2.8, and that at 2.8 it will let in twice the amount as you would at f, f4, and so on and so forth. So those numbers, weird though they may seem, are actually very relevant for the amount of light hitting the film plane. Well, that was a lot of math, <laughs> and I know that uh, it possibly wasn't very well understood, or maybe I didn't explain it very well, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Um, but let's move to our second part of this um, episode, and that's talking about uh, fall photography using different sorts of uh, color films other than, the, say, the normal ones, like ektar or portra or gold. All those films are wonderful to use for fall photography, and I've, I myself have used all those colors: Color Plus Two Hundred, um, you know, va uh, various color uh, film stocks, even Ektachrome. Ektachrome looks beautiful with film uh, fall photography. But this year, I wanted to try using some of the Lomochrome uh, films, uh, in particular Lomochrome Purple and. If I got my shipment of Lomachrome turquoise in, Lomachrome turquoise, and incidentally, I did get my shipment in, um, just know that if you haven't gotten it in, you will get it in. Lomography is sending them out. So hopefully, all you listeners that ordered Lomachrome turquoise will get, get it relatively soon. Well, I decided to shoot a couple of rolls of each, the Lomachrome purple and the Lomachrome uh, turquoise, um, to... to you know, shoot fall photography. And just to see what would happen, and my oh my, uh, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. Now, shooting Lomochrome purple, I, I've shot enough rolls to know that certain colors will yield certain results. For instance, a green will, you know, fo foliage green will tend toward purple. And when I've shot dandelions, they tended toward pink, bright pink. So I know that... Um, you know, the yellows will be pink and the greens will be purple. Reds, I was unsure of. Um, oranges, 
you know, I was kind of unsure of as well. But I loaded up a camera. It was my Olympus OM-2N uh, with Lomochrome Purple. And I shot some fall photography and I focused on yellow leaves. And I tell you what, uh, the colors are just <laughs> outstanding. It's almost like shoot, shooting uh, infrared film, but with the sky being a bright blue sky, it will be kind of a blue-green color. Dare I say a turquoise color <laughs> for Lomochrome Purple. Um, greens, of course, are kind of purple. Blue, uh, Yellows are uh, really pink. Blue, the blue sky being uh, blue-green. Um, I'll share some images that I got um, on the Gen X Photography uh, podcast um, Instagram site. Some of my favorite photos. In fact, what I'll do is I'll share, say, 10 of my photos uh, of Lomochrome uh, Purple and then 10 of Lomochrome Turquoise. Now, Lomochrome Turquoise was fascinating in that... So the greens of Lomochrome uh, Turquoise, when you shoot standard green foliage, it will end up being like a emerald green, like a really deep, intense, rich blue-green uh, it will have that look, and of course the sky being blue will be orange. But I know that as you, uh, that, that warm warm colors will render coolly, because, uh, so, so anything that's, like say, orange leaves will render as a bluish color, and red leaves even more so. I was unsure about yellow leaves, but I was pleasantly surprised to see that yellow also renders as a sort of a turquoise look. So uh, I'll share some of those images on the Gen X Photog Photography Podcast um, Instagram site. Also the Gen X Photog Pod um, Facebook page. That's a new page that I set up for this uh, podcast. And uh, if you want to uh, join it, you certainly can. Uh, again, that's the... Uh, Let's see, <laughs> the Gen X Photography Podcast Facebook group, um, and you can join that group. Uh, both Ju uh, Julianne and Suzanne, as well as myself, are moderators of that group. And as long as everything is, you know, respectful and clean, and you're sharing your photography, that's that's awesome. So I'll share some of these images. In fact, I think I, no, I haven't shared them on the Facebook on that Facebook group. I'll share some on the Facebook group as well as the Instagram site. But the, the point of this is don't be afraid to use Lomochrome Turquoise and Lomochrome Purple uh, with your fall photography. It won't yield the same, you know, the, the fall colors that we normally see with our eyes. By no means will it do that. But it will yield some really interesting results. Now, what I did is I actually sent these films off to be developed by the Dark Room out in San Clemente, California. Uh, reason being is I haven't had the greatest success or the most consistent success at developing these particular films. Um, it's not like Gold or Ektar where I've had pretty much good success developing those films. With the Lomochrome series, I haven't had the best of success. So I decided to just send them off because I've always had good success with The Dark Room. They do a fantastic job. And my, I tell you what, it's kind of a review of the Lomochrome Turquoise, the 2021 uh, a formulation, it's it's just popping. Uh, the the colors are saturated and rich, and they deliver that Lomochrome Turquoise 
look, but my oh my, they look so good. So for all of you dear listeners that have have ordered uh, Lomochrome Turquoise, again, know that you're going to get it. Uh, what happened with me is Lomography, I'm guessing it sent out a, a blast email to its, you know, whoever was going to receive it first or I don't know how they how they did it but I got an email asking or saying that they got it in stock in stock or it was shipped to you know the USA off US offices and to just confirm my my shipping uh address information so I sent it right away confirmed it and they said thanks we'll get it out to you and in just about a week or week and a half I got it uh, I got my orders in so um immediately started shooting it and sent it to the darkroom and I've loved the results ever since. And they, again, <laughs> Lomography, thank you for bringing that film back. And it's really, really good. Really good. All right. Well, I'm going to end this episode um, before I start rambling, which I tend to do. But thank you for listening to the the <laughs> conceptual parts, the mathematical parts. And again, I'm a novice at this. Take that with a grain of salt. Take all this with a grain of salt. Know that I'm trying to explain what I understand, but I'm sure some of you out there uh, know a lot more. I'm sure of that. And uh, we'll have a lot more information than I do. But um, again, just take it with a grain of salt. And uh, as far as the Lomochrome series, yeah, go out, get out and shoot your fall photography with the Lomochrome uh films they're they're fantastic even the lomochrome metropolis is fantastic for fall photography uh it gives you a different sort of result than it than does the standard uh color color film stocks so anyways thank you all for listening so much and as always keep those analog vibes alive (laughs) 